Thank you very much for coming, and I'd like to welcome you here uh, on behalf of uh, essentially the Department of Finance and the Financial Markets Group uh, here at the LSE to this event. Uh, the event uh, this evening uh, is an inauguration event for a, uh, a research program that's been fu funded uh, by the, uh, I think it says it on this uh, banner over here, uh, the AXA Research Fund, which is quite an extraordinary fund. It's put up uh, by AXA. Uh, and uh, although AXA is a French company, it has major activities in the UK. And this is research which is, uh, this is funding for uh, uh, frontier academic research in a whole range of subjects. And we've been fortunate enough at the LSE to gain funding uh, via this scheme uh, for this particular program of research on the future of banking and fi financial regulation, imaginatively named by me. Um, so it's a pleasure this evening uh, to uh, uh, welcome, first of all, uh, Dominic Carrel Billiard, uh, who's the Chief Executive of AXA Investment Managers, who will say a few words before we get into the major dis main discussion. Thank you, David. It's uh, a great honor for me and uh, a great duty as well to kick off this uh, project formally uh, funded by the AXA Group, as, as you said, David. But let me start to say I'm very proud to be here with you uh, tonight as a member of the Executive Committee of the AXA Group, also as the Chief Executive Officer of AXA Invest Managers, which is one of the uh, top 12 asset managers in the world with 500 billion euros of assets under management. Uh, and I'm very glad that this uh, research a project has been selected by the AXA Research Fund to advance the thinking on financial markets, financial supervision, and financial regulation. The LSE is no doubt the, uh, probably the best place to conduct that research, uh, having this uh, impeccable track record of debates, dialogues with uh, practitioners around the world. But before describing the research that uh, David and his team will be leading for the next three years, let me talk briefly about the AXA Research Fund and about the group. The AXA Research Fund is a major commitment for AXA as uh, a major insurer worldwide, but as a provider of financial protection. Our goal is to help societies at large in which we operate to identify, measure, prevent, manage risks. And uh, in that spirit, Henri de Castre launched in January 2008 the Research Fund, which aims at supporting both young talents and outstanding researchers all over the world uh, to provide them the best possible working conditions to conduct research on these topics of risk. So we have a number of partners around the world, of course, besides the LSE. Uh, we are sponsoring a chair for mathematics at the Institut des Hautes Études Sociales in Paris. We are uh, sponsoring a chair on longevity, longevity being one of the uh, new up-and-coming risks, especially in our developed world, uh, with the uh, University Paris Descartes and uh, uh, a, uh, an institute for meteorology in Berlin, among uh, a number of projects that the AXA Research Fund is proud to sponsor. We have an independent board of experts who actually review potential projects and select the projects we are sponsoring. Overall, the fund is endowed with 100 million euros 
which I guess in real money is about 115 million sterling. Uh, and it will be spent over the next five years. We've already selected 115 research initiatives in 14 countries. So it's a broad-based effort, and the LSC is now joining that group of projects that we are proudly sponsoring. As I said, protection against risks is the key uh, objective of this research fund, and we are talking of all sorts of risks. Environmental risk, of course, which have an impact on our uh, societies. The risks with associated with longevity, as we just said, but also financial risks, because the recent uh, events, as you will all know, have highlighted the impact and the potential impact that those risks can have on our real life in our real societies. Indeed, the 2007 subprime, subprime crisis, the ensuing stock market collapse and the bankruptcy of Lehman Brothers actually made us all realize around the world that financial risks had become very significant for all of us. Not only uh, have we rediscovered the risk of liquidity, but we've rediscovered overall the flip side of major product innovations, counterparty risks, collateralization risks, covenant risks, all sorts of risks. And it became also clear that the interconnectedness that is uh, effectively uniting all the major financial institutions around the world, but also the regulators and individual economic behaviors, has reached levels that nobody could have imagined before and that we need, therefore, to research at more depths and with more uh, systematic fact-based analysis. Despite these realizations and the ensuing accusative scapegoating targeting most financial services players, it remains a given that capital markets are a fundamental lever of our future expansion, economic growth, and collective well-being. So the key question is, how can the financial industry continue to serve the interests of investors and economic growth alike without putting the world at risk? And that's one of the key questions that this project is going to have to address. In a context where decision makers are under increasing pe uh, pressure to act swiftly and in which we are afraid they may overreact, driven by emotional reasoning more than by actual fact-based analysis. And while short-termism probably was one of the root causes of the current crisis, we believe that, uh, likewise, a similar myopia could be an issue for regulators and governments the world over as far as financial services are concerned. So we need to bring renewed objectivity, rationality to the analysis of financial risk so as to avoid counterproductive regulation inspired by emotions rather than by fact-based rational analysis, which we hope the LEC and the Financial Markets Group will be developing. Led by Professor David Webb, this research uh, will, be, uh, will bring together a core team of senior academics and young researchers to undertake cutting-edge theoretical and empirical research on these issues. Also, having Professor Charles Goodhart involved is a guarantee for thought-provoking and reaching research. The research program on risk management and regulation of financial institutions will focus on the different elements which compose what has become an extremely interdependent system. It will in particular focus on the governance of banks, the consequences of regulations on the financial system, asset valuation methods, 
risk management processes and the implication of compensation systems in financial institutions, what has been the focus of much debate in the past few months. As it is the case for all research undertaken with the support of the AXA Research Fund, the results of this program will be made publicly available. It will therefore be subject to the scrutiny of peers, which I think is a key requirement for objectivity and quality. This should provide uh, for a lively debate that hopefully will influence all players involved in those topics and along the financial services value chain. At AXA, we strongly believe that renewed global macroprudential regulation is necessary and we all stand to gain from it. But we want the changes to be introduced to be grounded in reality and analysis and not in emotional overreaction. We are therefore extremely proud to be part of this research program, of this adventure, and I'm happy to give the floor back to you, David, for a real discussion of substance. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dominic. Um, okay, I've got quite a lot of slides. Uh, the principle for giving a talk, by the way, is to have less slides than uh, you have to say. I'm slightly the other way around. Uh, so I'm going to have to turn them over fairly quickly because I don't have too long. Um, the first slide was merely to outline uh, some key aspects of the program. And um, uh, they're listed here, but Dominic's more or less told you what they are. It'll look at reward and governance structures within banks as complex, systemically important financial institutions. To look at the interconnected nature of these institutions and some of the issues that are involved in understanding their behavior. Uh, these involve looking at networks, information problems, incentives, and obviously trying to understand uh, the capital and liquidity of these organizations. But this is a fairly complex set of theoretical issues underlying that. We have a first-rate set of people looking at those here at the LSE, together with one or two of our um, uh, alumni, so to speak, Yoon Shin and uh, Marcus Brunemeyer. Um, there will be an attempt also within the pr program to build upon existing research that we've done uh, to improve our understanding of uh, risk, risk models. Now, that slide actually is incorrect. It should say risk models and not measures. Um, and finally, uh, we're going to uh, take a careful look at, on the basis of our understanding of how the system works, uh, at uh, ways of improving the design of regulation, uh, in particular looking at forward-looking counter-cyclical measures. Charles will talk quite a lot about that, no doubt, in his talk today. Uh, but without more ado, let me try and make some points which I think are motivational as much as anything else uh, as to what we're doing. Um, so uh, the current financial crisis has obviously cast some doubts on the workings of the invisible hand, the sort of marvelous coordinating mechanism that the market price system does. Market clearing prices provide all the relevant information to make efficient economic decisions. Um, what we've seen at the moment doesn't quite look like that. There are a number of things which either look like market or regulatory failure, and one or two of them are here. The Northern Rock problem, which is a major funding problem, uh, the maturity transformation model of Northern Rock uh, broke down and then uh, in the midst of uh, markets that uh, clearly had problems uh, we saw uh, general funding problems and gridlock. Um, throughout the crisis, certainly in its early phase and later on, there have been issues to do with the appropriate pricing of risk, uh, that's the pricing of credit risk, default swaps, CLOs, CDOs and so on. Lots of questions asked about the role of credit rating agencies and so on. 
these again cast doubt upon the workings of the market mechanism. Uh, Lehman's and AIG and the events of the middle of September last year are obviously quite remarkable and their aftermath is still with us. Um, here we saw significant failures no doubt in the workings of one or two key organizations, the market response and indeed the signals that we were receiving from the market about what was happening at that time and indeed serious questions were asked about uh, the uh, response from, from, from regulators. Uh, an issue that arises, of course, in all of this is that banking is quite complex and there are many interconnections and externalities associated with the banking system. Um, Andy, this is from uh, Andy Haldane at the Bank of England, who's uh, head of financial stability there now. Andy Haldane takes the view that financial institutions and the system as a whole, and indeed uh, the global financial system, is a set of quite complex networks, and we need to understand what happens at the various nodes in these networks. And when assessing risk at a particular network in the financial system, one's often got not just to look at the relationship to a particular counterparty, but the linkages that that counterparty might have into other parts of the system. And this, of course, raises serious questions about the nature of network externalities and so on. And there's lots of questions to do with understanding spillover and contagion. And perhaps throughout this crisis, we've found that perhaps our understanding of these things has been somewhat uh, limited. Uh, the Lehman's example probably is the best example of one and as Andy Haldane says a pretty painful learning experience for us all um, another comment from Haldane there in red that these network uncertainties make it uh, tremendously difficult uh, for risk managers to identify and price and hence manage balance sheets uh, they tend to be amplified across the network and those amplification effects probably are greater depending upon uh, the extent of leverage and also the informational problems which are very significant within these complex organizations. Here's a picture of a bank. Um, uh, it's not really the bank that we used to teach our undergraduates when I was uh, taught monetary economics with Charles. Uh, they were real simple. They just had, as I remember, deposits on one side and loans. I can't remember even including bank equity, quite frankly, but there you go. Uh, but on the right-hand side, you've got the kind of origination side of these uh, uh, modern financial transactions. And then throughout the particular picture here uh, that Andy Haldane's managed to draw, um, a lot of leveraging through CDOs, um, uh, CIVs, and so on. You've got CDO squares here, which are CDOs on CDOs, and so on. But an enormously complex uh, interaction of the original originating bank uh, with securitization structures leading to uh, leveraged and possibly quite opaque structures. Haldane in his paper in which he presents this refers us to Mary, Murray Gelman, the famous physicist, to understand some aspects of the complexity of this. Murray Gelman, if you ever type into Google, cleverest man in the world, the answer comes up Murray Gelman. Right? Yeah, I don't know who he was, he's the guy who came up with quarks and things like that, quantum chromatology, very complicated speaks 15 foreign languages and apparently do anything in his head but he couldn't solve this one apparently okay. I want to just say a tiny little bit about endogenous liquidity it's quite important, now these slides are pretty incomprehensible uh, which probably if there are students in here that attend my lectures then it wouldn't come as a surprise but uh, the bottom uh, part of the picture is quite important there's a very simple idea of a market here, a market in which you've got ordinary asset holders and then you've got hedges and the bottom slide says the demand for the asset is made up of normal 
uh, asset holders who look at price and some set of fundamental shift variables, GDP, real estate prices, terms of trade, it could be anything. And then you've got uh, the hedges. These are people who are actually trying to hedge the positions uh, in the end part of the equation. And uh, this could be the exercise of put options to protect values on the way down, or it could be stop loss orders or whatever. It's kind of over-the-counter uh, way of, uh, well, not strictly over-the-counter, it's a replication strategy for trying to minimize the risk to which the asset holders are exposed to, and that equals supply. Now here's a picture, supply and demand picture. If anybody can tell me where that picture was first uh, produced in the economics literature, I can tell them if they wish. It's a famous paper by Leyland and Janot. But there, the downward part of the demand curve going through E0 is the normal asset demand. Then as prices reach a certain point, then possibly a large number of hedges, because demand is made up of lots of independent asset demanders, decide to sell to reduce their exposure to the declining market. And as they do that in this particular picture, the demand curve is backward bending. And as you can see, faced with negative shocks to theta, say GDP, it moves to the left, and the possibility of getting to a point such as E1, after that, uh, the market becomes dominated by selling, and you get a dramatic drop in prices down to E2. That's an extreme example of the market drying up. There are no buyers and only sellers. Um, so the important bit of this story is the hedging. could be, as I say, the exercise of put options or stop-loss orders. The problem the picture illustrates is if the market's got lots of sellers and no buyers, then it's pretty unstable. Um, but for this particular model to make sense, you need somebody on the other side of the story. These hedges are pretty deluded because they've entered into a hedging position where they've got nobody to save them except for themselves. So presumably what they'd like to see is somebody on the other side of the story uh, which would be speculators. The problem we're illustrating here is uh, with asymmetric information, individual hedges are uh, sort of contemplating getting out at the exit price that they're currently at uh, rather than facing very significant price drops. If you introduce hedges into the market, which I've done here through AP, these are people that are willing to enter the market to go on the other side of the position market from the hedges. The only problem is that the speculators, if you like, the A in this particular equation, are probably looking at order flow and market prices to make inferences about what's going on. And it's not impossible that they're rather short in supply being willing to buy at the current price. So in which case, then, they're not really going to reverse the effect of the hedges. There's a potential for what we saw in that picture to actually happen won't go away. You'd like the hedges to get rid of that backward, the speculators to get rid of the backward bending bit. Um, but they're not, they're not necessarily going to do that if the information problems uh, that they're uh, faced with and the inferences they're drawing are causing them to sort of hold off, if you like. Um, so they don't provide sanctuary for hedges. So that's a very simple supply and demand picture with an alarming uh, example of essentially a, an illiquid market in which you get unidirectional price drops uh, without support being given to the market that good speculators would bring. What's that got to do with banking, you might ask? Why am I here? Okay, well, banking uh, has got a lot to do with correlation. And I said the hedges in that particular uh, picture are all effectively very heavily correlated in terms of what they're doing. Um, there are problems of liquidity and there are problems of instability. So that simple picture, which is obviously the caricature rather than the proper model, uh, illustrated that. One or two of the things I just sort of point out quickly are interconnectedness 
uh, information problems, correlation risks. There's lots of things in the market which suggest that when things go bad, we can get correlated cells. Uh, capital adequacy ratios tend to be pro-cyclical. They tend to promote positively correlated stop-loss orders. We're all trying to get out at the same time without uh, publicly available signals to coordinate our activity, so we're prevented from actually effectively uh, doing that. Um, Mark-to-market accounting, whilst you think of it as a good idea most of the time because it tells you where you are in terms of the market, uh, and it's almost certainly a useful guide to sound risk management, managing your balance sheet, we tend to be bad in, ba in bad times, in opaque illiquid markets. There's a problem then that mark-to-market accounting can uh, potentially produce positively correlated stop-loss orders, to use the language that I had in that earlier uh, slide. Um, and then, of course, banks tend to use the same risk models to calculate and manage their economic capital, uh, and that, again, can promote, economic, uh, can, uh, pr uh, promote uh, correlated uh, stop-loss orders. Uh, again, there are questions to be asked there about what sorts of information people have in the market for that to be a realistic problem. And counterparty positions, I've said in general, tend to be maybe opaque. Um, now, here's a picture of market liquidity. Uh, just to illustrate that what I said, I didn't think it's ridiculous. If you look at the, this point here where that graph is at its peak, uh, that's around about June, July 2007. Tremendous liquidity in the market, uh, uh, credit spreads were incredibly low, an enormous appetite, if you like, for risk. Um, then something happened, it all dried up. And that's, uh, that's the summer of 2007 when the subprime crisis hit us and we got very serious funding problems. Um, and it's clear in that particular market there, it looks as if you've probably got more sellers than buyers. That, that, at least that's my guess. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, the problem in the banking system is that the banks, are, they're levered, they're very interconnected. And uh, because of this, if banks uh, say, if a bank has got a particular problem, we've seen this, so that it can't satisfy its tier one capital ratio, then in actually having to rebalance its portfolio to do that, it can pass a problem on to another bank. The simplest example would be simply calling in its loans uh, to the bank. So that bank then has to, if it's close to its own limit, it has to do something too. Now you might say, well surely that can be undone through a secondary market transaction. Well not necessarily if there's, if there's a liquidity problem builds up in the secondary market. And when banks start to sell assets into markets, if these are correlated sales, then they're what we call in economic speak uh, fire sales, these depress uh, market prices, they affect the banks through their capital ratios. Mark to market accounting can become a problem, as I've already said, and uh, the risk models uh, may again uh, add to the degree of correlation. So the potential there for correlation and in fact concentration of risk in the financial system rather than its dispersion. So there's a point about uh, inability to sort of exit properly uh, in, in this kind of world. The, the problems are exacerbated by asymmetric information and the potential for gridlock. Okay. Let's just take a quick look at this picture. This picture is more familiar to us. This is the consolidated balance sheet of the banking system. So I think we can all understand this from basic economics. We've got a lot of students here. On one side of the balance sheet, we've got the lending to borrowers. On the other side, we've got the total debts, uh, the total liabilities to non-banks and the bank's total equity. Now, this is a consolidated picture um, 
You know, you, the, the big item on the right-hand side, which is the uh, bank's uh, liabilities to the non-bank deposits and so on, uh, this is a slow-moving thing, and you would think would move in line uh, with certain macro fundamentals. If you actually take a, a, pic, a look inside of that particular picture at an individual bank, if you go on to Google or Google Finance, take a look at the balance sheet of Royal Bank of Scotland or Barclays, and you see on that balance sheet that the, uh, the, uh, the loans that the banks uh, were making far exceeded uh, fairly recently, it's a recent phenomena, uh, the actual deposits of the banks. The banks have really changed themselves a lot. So the consolidated picture is far out of line with what's going on inside of that. We've got banks that look a lot more like the banks in Haldane's picture and we've got to take a careful look at the, uh, at the effective bank leverage which this picture disguises. Once upon a time we thought of banks as doing something like this. Yeah? That's not very interesting. The mortgage bank, it gets some money in from depositors and it lends it out. A modern bank is involved in, a liquid, in an intermediation chain. Uh, I won't go through this in detail but there's a series of connections, it's not unique. Uh, we've got money market funds, we have commercial um, paper, we have the securities firm, the ABS, asset-backed security issuer, mortgage pool back into households who are holding ultimate claims. So it's a complicated sort of structure. The structure that was in the Haldane picture was a lot more complicated than that. But that's certainly something we could talk about in more detail uh, if we had more time. Um, what are the so let's say the modern bank, the banks we've been talking about in this crisis are called originate and distribute banks. These are banks that actually originate loans, don't keep them on their balance sheet, but package them one way or another into the capital market. They use securities, and we all know the names of these now. And what are the advantages of these longer intermediation chains that are involved in that? Well, obviously the first thing is it disperses credit risk, and it's supposed to improve maturity transformation which ultimately is supposed to reduce the cost of capital to both households and firms. So we're all supposed to be better off in terms of our ability to distribute resources over time. Now the evidence of this crisis tends to point the other way. Securitization seems to have concentrated risk. We've got these unidirectional sales of assets, etc. The, the, the concentration of less risk into the leveraged sector um, has been very, very clear. And in fact it's quite remarkable that uh, we only really saw it and started to understand the consequences of it, at least in general. I'm not saying Charles and people like that haven't understood it because they have and made uh, many statements about it uh, over the past uh, number of years. Uh, but uh, throughout the past period, we've seen a very big growth in short-term debt, primarily between financial intermediaries, an awful lot of borrowing and lending between banks uh, as part of this change in the nature of banks to big players in the securities markets. Um, and I think that what uh, obviously this is highlighted is the need, need to understand uh, how this changing behavior of banks uh, would uh, arise in possible uh, systemic risk and trying to understand uh, exactly what that systemic risk is. And this is where, and I think Charles will say a bit more about this, is that COVAR as opposed to VAR, understanding uh, the co-value at risk between banks and taking forward-looking views of how risks evolved is actually quite fundamental. But you have to do that within the context of understanding the nature of the organizations that you're thinking about and the type of balance sheet that they've got and how those balance sheets are connected to each other. And it's only by doing that that you'll get a good understanding of how, say, idiosyncratic problems as opposed to systemic problems 
affect individual banks and how indeed, because of the way the system works, even an idiosyncratic problem, a problem at a bank which it created itself, can become systemic. Okay? Um, this is brilliant. Okay, so you can see the IMF in 2006 said the world was perfect. Um, so I'm not going to read that all out because I've got time. Uh, but uh, as a result of all these fantastic changes, the ability to use the securities markets, uh, the commercial banks may be less vulnerable to date credit shocks than in the past. Fantastic. Yep. So here's a picture of the TED spread. This is an indicator of risk. It's uh, basically uh, a completely secured uh, treasury uh, uh, bill three months against the euro dollar which is not secured um, and you can see what happened to the TED spread the TED spread along here is very very flat, it's not going anywhere uh, the market thinks there's very little credit risk, you can look at the same thing in the credit default swap market, both the US and the UK, or you can look at the simple differential between uh, you know, high grade corporate bonds and medium grade corporate bonds, similar kind of picture, you can see we get to um, 2007, things pick up a bit, then they go down again because uh, we entered the comfort zone after uh, uh, Northern Rock and so on. But then obviously after the Lehman's event, then things go completely haywire. But it's fairly evident that the market did not see the problem coming. So when the Queen said who, well, who didn't see this? It wasn't just a bunch of economists. Some did see it, by the way. Yun Shin, who's involved in this particular project, wrote many pieces saying this was going to be a problem. Uh, Charles would be uh, testimony to, to that, give testimony to that. Um, ABC programs, asset-backed commercial programs, I've got a bit on here, I think I'll skip that. Uh, these programs were supposed to uh, obviously help shift uh, risk into the capital markets, uh, but they didn't uh, completely alleviate the sponsoring banks of uh, their risk that originate. I think Charles has called this part of the original originate and pretend to distribute uh, process. I hope I'm not stealing your thunder on that, Charles. Um, but anyway, uh, it all went terribly wrong and uh, after they started to unwind, uh, the credit markets appeared to get dislocated and the Financial Stability Report of the Bank of England in April 2008 made it very clear there were very serious problems there. Uh, people lost confidence in their counterparties and also they seriously lost con uh, um, confidence in the credit rating agencies and didn't really trust what they were coming up with. Anyway, I've got very little time, I've had it probably overshot. Um, but this is what tends to happen. In booms, we get higher leverage of financial in intermediaries. The balance sheets of financial intermediaries tend to grow. They've grown dramatically in the last 10 years. Uh, even if you net out derivatives, which you should do for a UK bank, you, you net derivatives in the US, you tend to report them gross in the United States. The Royal Bank of Scotland, uh, just at the, uh, say a month ago, it's been delevering, had uh, uh, one uh, trillion derivatives on its balance sheet, uh, but the rest of the balance sheet was still uh, 1.5 trillion. But that's pounds. So what was left over was still as big as Citigroup, after you've netted the derivatives out. Huge balance sheet, which had grown dramatically in the last decade. Uh, there's obviously a lot of increased intertwining of intermediaries. Andy Haldane's picture would suggest that. Uh, longer chains, uh, more potential maturity mismatch, which is a really serious problem if you get uh, changes in market uh, interest rate conditions for funding problems. What happens in busts? Deleveraging, de shrinking of balance sheets, unraveling of interbank lending, runs retrenchment. Obviously, uh, what do we need out of this? Well, 
Clearly, we need better mechanisms for uh, identifying systemically important institutions and when they pose a problem. The complexity of the institutions is a serious problem, in particular if the managers don't understand them and the regulators don't understand them. And uh, if they get into serious trouble, we don't know what to do with them. Uh, so people have come up with the idea of living wills, which means at least, you know, just as you're supposed to understand your own affairs when you write a will, so your family don't spend their decades with lawyers burning up the family fortune trying to unravel the mess. So banks uh, are advised to do a similar thing. And I guess the argument would be if you can't write a will explaining your financial affairs, maybe you should simplify your financial affairs or de-complex the organization. Um, obviously, moral hazard and systemic risks are interconnected, and this means uh, we've got issues to do with understanding too big to fail, too big to save. Charles will probably say something about this. There are a number of ways of getting around some of these problems. Uh, one thing is to try and sort of smooth out fluctuations in bank uh, leverage. As an example, they put a leverage cap on, which the Swiss uh, have done, uh, the leverage ratio. Uh, Swiss have got quite a simple system, so perhaps it's a little easier for them than, uh, say, it would be for the US or the UK. Uh, they've got one very large bank, or two large banks. Um, uh, obviously, you might want to start to see if you could smooth out fluctuation in, in equity, and this would be making sure that you provision properly for expected losses or possible losses. There's a Spanish model there, and Charles has got some further material on that. Um, it's pretty clear, in my view, that the world needs to be simplified a little bit. Um, it would help if, if opacity was reduced. Counterparty exposures could be uh, uh, made a lot clearer. One way of doing that would be uh, making sure that all these products are actually on a, on a, on a market, such as uh, we have the futures contracts in Chicago or, indeed, in London, or, indeed, we could have centralized clearing platforms set up by the banks themselves for some of these things, and maybe that would help uh, sort of eliminate some of the potential uh, connectedness risks that I've talked about. Um, here's some general uh, points here. These are quite common. Uh, we can uh, sort of try to uh, take banks back a bit in time to what they used to be, so um, more on balance sheet activities, less use of, uh, of, of maturity and risk transformation through the capital markets. You might want to try and improve systemic oversight uh, in the system, uh, which means the financial stability end of the Bank of England needs beefing up a little bit, and to get, make sure you've got the right regulatory breaks if you think you've got a problem. Easier said than done. Uh, I personally think that uh, pure price level stability is not enough. You need to take, pay attention to what's happening to asset prices. The moment we've seen quantitative easing on a massive scale, uh, leading to very soft credit conditions and incredible rises, I think, in asset prices, you know, since it's not going to the price of a box of chocolates, it's got to go into the price of something. Um, Charles will correct me on that if I'm wrong. Unless you believe in the liquidity trap. Yeah? Then it just stays where it is. Market-to-market yeah? -market accounting. I've got a lot of time for market-to-market accounting. I think this is important. Uh, but you can't have market-to-market -market accounting uh, for non-traded assets on balance sheets of banks that aren't currently in trouble uh, because in, in, very, uh, in down illiquid markets going to give you a big problem. So that's all I've got to say. So I've taken too long. Charles, thank you very much.
David has just shown you very clearly that we have recently been through a quite enormous financial credit asset price cycle in which all the financial intermediaries took on huge amount of leverage, expanded credit wildly over the period 2004, the middle of 2007. Then there was a horrible shock, and then we've had a period of massive deleveraging, falls in asset prices, and with extremely adverse effects on the real economy. Now, what I want to talk about is how we can try and prevent uh, this kind of asset price credit leverage cycle uh, happening in future. Now, there are a number of countermeasures one can take, and the first set of countermeasures are those which suggest various kinds of direct constraints uh, on the banking system. Uh, these I tend to think of as attempts to get back to some Arcadian earlier system when the world was unsullied by all these new innovations. And I have a certain hesitation about both. They're both related to a really rather nice slogan. And the slogan with respect to size is, runs as follows. If a bank is too big to fail, it is too big. Uh, a slogan which has been attributed uh, both to Paul Volcker and to the Governor of the Bank of England, Mervyn King. Now, that I have a certain sympathy for, and I think it is undoubted that huge giants like Bank of America and Citibank probably are actually too big to manage and too big to run. But there are a number of problems that one needs to keep in mind. First of all, the real difficulties in the United States in the interwar period, 1929-1933, were not that the banks were too big, they actually were too small. It was all the undiversified unit banks that collapsed in heaps, whereas the much bigger uh, diversified oligopolistic banks in Canada and the UK um, survived much better. Then again, too big in what market context? You can be very big in a small area, but tiny in the context of a much larger region. Uh, a bank like Standard Chartered is probably quite small in virtually any of the countries in which it operates, but is nevertheless uh, a pretty big bank. Then again, if you are to, say, take Citibank and simply divide it up into a hundred identical claims of itself, how much better off are you? Remember that if these are identical and one of those clones goes down, then all the other 99 will be immediately suspect and there will be immediate contagion. It's not just size. It is self-similarity. And it was in part because all the banks, perhaps under the influence of regulation itself, were tending to hold the same kind of portfolios, including large quantities of the kind of subprime mortgage CDO assets that David was talking about, that the initial crisis rapidly became a worldwide crisis. And again, think of the actual response of the authorities. When a bank gets into difficulties, what they do in practice is to merge it with a bigger bank. 
So the actual practical response of the authorities in a crisis goes exactly opposite to this argument that you don't want to have them too big. Nevertheless, at the end of the day, I accept that scale interconnected with self-similarity with other banks uh, and general connectedness uh, is important and it may indeed be appropriate to impose higher regulatory or other kind of taxes uh, on uh, institutions which are both large and interconnected. The next one, activity, the slogan here is that banks combine a casino with a utility and you need to divide them and you need to protect the utility and leave the casino to itself. And that has been connected uh, with, for example, in recent weeks, the rewritings of John Kay. Uh, I think that this is entirely misguided. Uh, for example, if there was any financial intermediary who could describe as a pure casino in sort of Kay's approach, it would surely have been Lehman Brothers. And yet, allowing Lehman's to go bust was regarded as one of the greatest mistakes of this crisis. And indeed, most of those institutions which had to be saved, because otherwise things would have got much worse, such as Bear Stearns, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, uh, and AIG, were not recipients of retail deposits and were not closely connected uh, with the payment system. Indeed, it is right to protect retail depositors and the payment systems, but people who think about narrow banks usually forget that the real crisis that we've had in this recent uh, deleveraging has been a drying up of credit to the real economy, and it is credit as much as protection of retail deposits and the payment system that is a needed public good. Uh, within uh, the economy. And finally, if you have a protected narrow bank which is not allowed to hold risky assets, it will tend to be a pr relatively low-yielding institution which offers relatively few services at relatively low and unattractive rates. So when things are looking good, everybody will leave the narrow banks We've had plenty in the UK of narrow banks, post office savings bank, trustee savings banks, were archetypal pub, uh, narrow banks, and where did, what happened to them? People left them because they didn't provide much in the way of services or returns. So when things are good, everybody moves out of the narrow banks into the riskier but more profitable and higher yielding risky banks. Then when you get a crisis, of course everybody floods in the opposite direction. So actually the boundary problem of narrow banking caused the idea to be actually more pro-cyclical than the system we have at the moment. Then there's the problem of remuneration. This is the payoff to a limited liability shareholder, and as you can see, you are better off the payoff being the, com the, the complete line, not the, the dashed line, and there you can see, because you've got limited liability, there's a, a bottom, a, a limit to the amount you can lose. Now, the payoff is a, exactly the equivalent of a call option. And as a call op, with any call option, given the same mean return, the shareholder will do better 
with a higher volatility outturn. Out in other words, an equal chance of A plus B gives you a far better expected uh, utility than having a certain outcome of C. And indeed, reasonably diversified shareholders ought always to be pushing management to take the highest volatility outcome consistent with a given mean return. Remember that Northern Rock was the darling of the London Stock Exchange until about four months before it went absolutely belly up. One of the worst aspects of the governance debate has been the suggestion that the uh, incentives and remuneration uh, of management should be aligned with that of shareholders because it's in the interest of shareholders to take for the management to take high risks. And if you align, align the interest of management with that of shareholders, then, shareholder, then management will be encouraged to take high risks too. There's a whole series of papers by Lucien Bebchuk of the uh, Harvard Law School which are well worth reading on this front. I might add, however, that research recently by René Stoltz and the Swiss economist have shown that even when management had most of their wealth tied up in the assets and equity of their own companies, they still effectively appeared to take, appeared to take high risks and the losses were not related to the remuneration conditions of those banks. And that was very largely uh, because um, uh, they appeared not to have understood the risks they were taking. If you ask what went wrong with management, it was probably that they were fools rather than knaves. Now, the discussion about what we should do differs markedly between the United States and Europe. In the United States, those who have read Paul Krugman know that there is this huge ideological division between the freshwater economists who believe that markets still work perfectly and most of the things that go wrong are the results of government interference and the saltwater economists who are more like the Europeans. Uh, the freshwater economists in the US still uh, mostly regard the crisis as having been the result of inappropriate government actions, holding interest rates too low between 2002 and 2005, and encouraging the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and others to enter the subprime market, as indeed they, they did. Again, the subprime market has been demonized, but if you go back to the period of 2006, this was generally regarded by almost everybody, including the politicians, as one of the greatest financial innovations of our day. Moreover, the freshwater economists in the U.S. believe that regulators and governments cannot either set regulations effectively or set uh, prices uh, properly. The mantra is that, as follows, uh, regulation is static, but markets and financial intermediaries are dynamic, which effectively means that regulation takes forever to get done, it's always behind the time, and the markets and bankers will innovate round it. Consequently, the Americans are trying to think much more about ways to provide incentives to banks to insure themselves rather than to have external um, uh, 
regulatory. And there's studies on how banks should self-insure, for example, requiring them to hold debt, which would transform into equity when a certain trigger was passed or when a CDS trigger was, was, was set. Or that there should be public sector insurance, but the price for that insurance should be set by actually having the private sector insure a relatively small proportion uh, of the banking system. And then the public sector, in a sense, piggybacks on the insurance prices set within the private sector. The discussion, of course, is entirely different in Europe where the idea that you can set the incentives of banks so that they effectively control themselves is not regarded as a, a sensible or a starter. And in uh, Europe, we're much more into the process of trying to set counter-cyclical capital adequacy requirements, liquidity ratios, leverage ratios, and so on. And the problem is, how is this done? And what should the ladder of sanctions for those failing to do this be? And then there are the various methods of trying to control the cyclical developments uh, that were uh, serious and adverse in housing markets. So where are we going? This is my final slide, and I'm going to start at the beginning. One way or another, what we are going to do is we are going to raise the cost of banking by imposing considerably greater burdens on them. This is going to involve much larger spreads between deposit and loan rates as the bankers struggle facing both leverage ratios, liquidity ratios, and higher capital ratios to obtain a sufficient return on equity. It's the only way they can do it. Now, the spread between deposit and loan rates effectively is the cost of intermediation. And if you make the cost of banking intermediation much greater, effectively people will move to other intermediation forms. That is going to involve a much larger part of those wanting loans to move outside the banking system. How can this be done with a smaller banking system? And remember that it is a smaller banking system that most of those uh, who are introducing regulation actually want to see happen. If you have a smaller banking regulation, what happens to all those who want loans who cannot go direct to the capital markets as the large companies can? The answer effectively is, as far as I can see, we are going to have to re-establish the whole process of securitization, but on a simpler, more transparent basis. Now, all the international agreements are going to be hideously complicated by battles over the responsibilities between home and host regulators. Again, there is a slogan here, uh, again attributed to Mervyn King, uh, that these complex financial intermediaries are international in life but national in death. And so how do you deal with the fact that when the things get into difficulties, it's the national authorities who have to pick up the pieces? The discussion of what to do is being deflected into turf wars about who should do what, rather than in the much more important question of what are these additional counter-cyclical instruments that should be used by whoever is put in charge. Quite what will happen in terms of providing greater insurance or greater counter-cyclical regulation 
or some of both, remains uncertain. The Europeans, I think, are now bound to adopt the American-style leverage ratio in addition to the Basel II risk-weighted assets ratio, and maybe the leverage ratio may be adjustable by discretion, and there may also be a resumption generally of a kind of Spanish dynamic provisioning uh, process. But finally, going back to the point that the freshwater economists tend to make, is that the, the banks and the financial system will generally find their way round regulations. And that means that there is no possibility of getting to any perfect form of regulation which will forever control and mitigate the kind of cycles we've had. There won't be a serious financial cycle unless we make very, or the authorities make very serious mistakes for the next five years because everyone has been so scared and memories are still very fresh. But wait 15 or 20 years. Uh, I shan't be here any longer, but most of you will have forgotten by then how horrible it was in 2007 and 2009. And once you forget, then you will have the next crisis and cycle. Uh, it's when, it's when those who are young enough to remember uh, start leaving the financial institutions that the next really serious cycle occurs. And remember that a real crisis always occurs just when everything is looking good. Thank you. So, um, the next speaker is uh, Eric. Uh, I should try to pronounce it in French, but I won't. Shame. No, don't say Chini. That's the only thing. <laughs> well, good evening. It's not an easy task to speak after David and Charles. And uh, if I listen correctly to Charles, uh, there is no hope in trying to reform the financial system. Because uh, what you said, Charles, is that there is no memory in the system. So if this is really true, I'm wondering whether AXA is really right to fund this uh, research project. <laughs> but nevertheless, I'm personally quite excited by this project. And I have to introduce myself. I'm the chief economist of the AXA group, but I'm coming from hard science. Once upon a time, I was in mathematics. Uh, probably it was too hard, so I didn't stay there. I moved to uh, the Statistical Institute, statistics, and uh, let's say the economics of the real economy. And I've spent almost 15 years in an investment bank at Morgan Stanley here in London. But I was much more focused on the real economy because in the end, the financial markets follow the real economy or anticipate what the real economy is going to do, which is another way to follow people, you know, that's just like the spies. They know how to follow people by walking ahead of them. And there are three reasons why I find this program quite important, not only for AXA. I don't know exactly where this phone is ringing. This is one of the mysteries. <coughs> so let, let me... Uh... No, that's not mine. 
<laughs> I would recognize the, the bell. Let, let me start with uh, one thing. As I said, I, I'm, I'm somebody from the real economy. I've spent uh, uh, many years at INSEE tracking the real economy through business services, uh, business surveys, and all that. And I, there, there is the first thing I, I would like your group, David, to uh, clarify is exactly what happened after the bankruptcy of Lehman. Charles says, but, but you didn't give your own view, Charles, on that. It's, well, probably it was a mistake to let Lehman go down. And there are people saying it would not have changed anything if uh, Lehman had been saved. I don't know. But what I do know is that something that had never happened before took place after the bankruptcy of Lehman. It was a 20% fall in the volume of global trade. Uh, on these charts, you will not be fooled by the scale because it's a log scale, and the basis of the log is two. So it's very easy to know when global trade is doubling. And uh, it's not so easy to track global trade over 100 years, but I'm tempted to think that even in war periods, even when there were blockades decided by policymakers, we never had such a fall in global trade. In three months' time, there was a contraction of 20%, and that's the real economy, as if the bankruptcy of Lehman had frozen the oceans, had forced uh, cargo planes to uh, land and to be grounded for almost five months. What happened exactly? I think if we work seriously on that, it will take a lot of time before we fully understand what happened. And this is absolutely crucial for me, because if we want to avoid this kind of sequence of events, chain reaction, to happen again, we first need to understand the phenomenon itself. I have a couple of ideas. It seems to me that liquidity is at the center of this story. After Lehman, there were doubts on the banking system in general, the capital markets were closed, and even the best companies started to have some doubts, not about the capital markets because they were closed, that was very easy to understand, but about their own banks. Maybe the banks will have disappeared in three months' time. In that case, if you are the CEO, you have only one target, which is you want your company to survive. So you want to accumulate liquidity, and you liquidate inventories if at the same time there is a full-blown credit crunch on trade finance, then you might have this kind of chain reaction which leads to this incredible fall. Well, if you look at the right hand of the chart, the good news is that global trade has started to recover. There was a 5% increase in May and June, and I think that it has continued to recover. But even if we have a 1975 recovery, I have simulated that, and a lot of people think it will not be a 1975 recovery, but even if it happens, on my calculations, we will not be back to the level of global trade in the early part of 2008 before 2013, maybe 2015. I stress that because these events will have long-term consequences. In the meantime, many companies, those which are not able to cut their fixed costs, will simply disappear. 
And this will have, of course, long-term consequences. So we need you guys to understand better the connection between the financial system, and David went into the complexity of this financial system, to understand how this has led to this uh, equivalent of a seizure. Now, the second reason why I think this research program is extremely important, it, it might be wishful thinking. But there are, of course, a lot of talks, and not only talks, about re-regulating the financial system, and Charles has already talked a lot about that. It seems to me that because we had this great crisis, the next one is probably not going to happen in the next two to three years. And I do hope that policymakers, politicians, the G20, the world leaders, as they call them, will take their time before taking decisions, because we need science first to help us understand what is good to do, what is less good to do. I'm afraid that the decisions will be taken before this group will have published its conclusions, but nevertheless, if you do nothing, you do not help the debate. A couple of points. Capital requirements. Charles said that is the European way to regulate the banking system. Well, maybe we need to understand better the fundamental economics of capital requirements. Why should the ratio be 8% and not 16% or 2%? Zero is probably not good. All right, but why eight? I'm still expecting something like a sound theory of capital requirements. And that's why I'm very happy that Charles is in this project. I have another issue, which is the competition between regulators, which seems to me to be something quite natural. Financial regulators are in charge of their own markets, their own financial institutions. So to, to some extent, they are part of their own constituency. So they are in competition with each other. Let me take an example. In two th I think it was at the end of 2003. At that time, I was still at Morgan Stanley. So the big U.S. investment banks knocked at the door of the Fed and said, look, we have a problem. Deutsche Bank has a leverage ra ratio of uh, 65. Barclays Capital, 60. BNP Paribas, 55. And the U.S. rule is 12. How can we compete with these dangerous people who are taking stupid risks? So the Fed and the ECC looked at the issue and said, look, well, probably 12 is, uh, is not uh, necessary given the very nice risk models that you have. And uh, this uh, leverage limit was lifted. And immediately, the leverage was increased to 50, 60, 70, to levels comparable to Europe. Of course, European banks would tell you that it doesn't mean anything, that it depends on the quality of assets, and that brings us back to the debate about risk-weighted assets. But my point is very simple. Basically, there was a competition between regulators. I understand why the SEC and the Fed said, okay, you can increase your leverage. How can a regulator condemn its own industry for the sake of sound regulation? It doesn't make sense because in that case, the regulator was disappear, and I have not seen any institution taking decisions that lead to its own uh, disappearance. So competition between regulators is a problem. Is this a market failure? I leave that to the research program. 
My next point is not on micro-regulation, but on macro-regulation. I don't know whether I'm a freshwater or a saltwater economist. Maybe living in Paris, I should say that uh, I'm just a ground economist. I don't know. Uh, but I think that they have a point. Let me explain. When I look at, and let me go back to global trade. When you look at the trend in global trade, well, it's, of course, very easy to say that with the benefit of hindsight, but the trend in global trade was not sustainable. The global economy has been growing at 5% in terms of GDP growth from 2004 to 2000, early 2008, and global trade was running at 8 9 10% on average, global trade of manufactured products. It seems to me that there was a lot of evidence that the global economy was overheating, the evidence did not come from CPI inflation, at least in the first stage. It came from some asset prices. It came from commodity markets, which were all going through the roof, metals first, oil then. It came from housing markets, where I think with the exception of Germany and Switzerland, all the property markets in the, in the world, including Tokyo, uh, had prices going through the roof. There was a lot of evidence of something like inflation starting to creep up. And it seems to me that the central banks were very slow to acknowledge that fact that there is a global component in inflation in this truly globalized world where China is now playing almost the most important role. If there is a global component in inflation, because you have a local mandate, then there might be a leakage in the system that is designed to guarantee price stability. Now, let me simplify. I'm talking about macro regulation because I suspect, but, you know, I'm not a researcher, but I suspect that we had a problem in terms, we had a coordination failure, to use a textbook economic word, between the central banks. And I know that the central banks do not want to cooperate. They are ready to cooperate when it is about managing liquidity. They have done that incredibly well. They have probably saved the world. But when it comes to monetary policy, interest rate uh, policy, they refuse to cooperate. And this is perfectly understandable because they have local mandates. Why would the Fed be worried about oil prices going above $100? Why would the ECB be worried? Because there is a risk of inflation in the US. And I suspect that there is a coordination failure here, and that is an issue of macro-regulation. We need more research on that. I've already mentioned this issue of national regulators, but it seems to me that maybe the root cause of the financial crisis and its consequences on the real economy that you have seen on my chart on global trade could have been in this lack of coordination between the central banks which have let the economy grow too fast given the resources that we have and also the credit supply curve which is also truly globalized except when banks die this was, again, not coordinated in terms of regulation. If we have a coordination failure, what should we do? How can we align the interest? I had an idea which might be stupid, 
which is to ask the BIS, which was, in my view, the most uh, lucid institute to see inflation coming, to force the central bankers, I'm talking about the big central banks in the world, and that has, of course, to include the people banks of China, to sit around together and talk about global inflation from time to time. Anyway, there is an issue here, and I hope that this group will work also on what is now called global macro prudential regulation, which is a bit too long for me. Well, thank you very much. I think that now we are going to turn to the debate, and I hope that we will have a lot of questions from your side. Thank you. So, um, thank you very much, Eric. I'm going to try and chair the discussion, so some of you will want to escape. So, if you could do that as quietly as possible for people around you. Um, maybe always from the upper floor, the people that go early. Okay, so um, we can take questions if you want to say who you are and who your question is directed at. That would be helpful. Have a question? Yes. Hello, my name is Ida, and uh, uh, it's, it's not a question, more like a comment. Uh, I find it very interesting uh, because one of my interests are emerging markets and the developing world. And the, the problem has always been about regulation that there hasn't, haven't, hasn't been any institutions you know, to um, support any economic development. So how do you think you will affect now that the Western world is coming to terms with uh, there is a moral hazard in its own regulate, regulatory system? And what effects will it have for the developing world? Um, well, Charles has probably got more to say about that than me. It's quite common uh, for the Western world to preach to the developed world. I remember prior to the Asian economic crisis, we were explaining to Asian countries that they should mimic our accounting and regulatory regimes because they worked, worked very well at that time. Uh, and uh, in and around that time, that was the discussion. It was only a few years after that we had events such as Enron and uh, Worldcom and so on in the United States. There was a certain confidence lost there. And obviously the recent set of events that we've had in which these elaborate structures that we've developed in the West to regulate our capital markets in an increasingly glo globalized world have been something that have come into considerable question. It's quite remarkable that our uh, rather... Um, informal approach to regulation, the light-touch approach, which has been adopted most places, uh, probably more so in London than anywhere else, has uh, in some sense let us down. Uh, the reliance on market prices rather than uh, more information about organizations, uh, more powers in the hands of regulators to ask serious questions of the regulated, etc. So I think one of the things that perhaps has come out of this is that uh, maybe there's not so much catching up the, by the developed world in terms of learning methods of good scrutiny, exercising due diligence and care in regulation 
uh, we've all got something to learn from the recent episodes. Uh, but the World Bank and other organizations that get involved uh, with the developed world will have learned a lot from this exercise and no doubt some of the things that they tell uh, African, Asian, Latin American countries that are developing uh, you know, will change. So hopefully there are good things to be learned. Charles? I, this crisis was brought about by errors in the developed world, not in the emerging and developing world. Nevertheless, the emerging and developing world has suffered really quite badly. In part, this was because of what is known as financial protectionism, uh, whereby the banks that have been supported by taxpayer money in the developed world have been encouraged by the political authorities to concentrate their lending in their home countries. There have been a large number of emerging countries, primarily in Eastern Europe, where the majority of banks have been foreign banks. And so just at a time when the, uh, the exports from the developing and emerging world were falling, both in price and quantity, the capital flows through in intermediated through the banking system into those countries was falling even faster. So they were faced with a really serious problem uh, on, in their current account and their balance of payments, which is one of the reasons why, um, as Eric was saying, why the trade collapsed. And so the trade collapsed as much, uh, or in some cases even more, in the emerging and developing world than it did in the developed. Um, and this, I think, uh, again, uh, underlines the importance of having proper international mechanisms for supporting the developing countries through this kind of problem. If I may add something, um, I think your question is um, fascinating because we have a kind of things are turned upside down. But I don't think that we can say that this great recession was uh, only a originated in the developed world and had there was a shock wave through global trade to the emerging world it seems to me that the developing world is part of what has happened in uh, this brilliant decade after the Asian crisis from 1998 to 2008 the world was great in terms of growth in terms of stability it was called the great stability era I think by the by central bankers, and my point is the following. The developing world, the emerging markets, emerging economies took the lesson from the, the Asian crisis, and they have acted very decisively to avoid a repetition of this kind of crisis, which was mostly linked to capital inflows and quick capital outflows. And the strategy of the most important emerging economies was to accumulate foreign exchange reserves. And this has been done very successfully by China, by Asian countries in general, by Brazil as well, and that was a big cushion against any kind of adverse event. Very successful strategy. But at the same time, these reserves had to be invested somewhere. And of course, when you think that you have to put a priority on liquidity and safety, you invest these reserves in U.S. treasuries. And this is the theory of the saving glut that uh, Ben Bernanke and others have developed, that even when the Fed was raising short-term rates, long-term rates were nailed by 
the developing countries, central banks, investing in treasuries, in which case monetary policy is losing its grip on the economy. I don't know whether this theory is correct or not. There is a huge debate about is it a savings plot, is it basically the lack of savings in the U.S., which is at the root of the crisis. We need more research to understand that. But I, what I wanted to say is that this world is now fully connected. And decisions taken by the People Banks of China in terms of investing in its reserves have an impact on the capital markets and the real economies everywhere in the world. My name is Tobias. I'm a graduate student at LSE. My question is directed to Mr. Cheney. Thank you for your very interesting uh, presentation. One common element uh, when we talk about this crisis, however, I, I thought was somewhat missing, and that sort of moral hazard of uh, you know, people involved. I'd love you to uh, share your views about that with us, and maybe even of uh, any adjustments to um, compensation schemes at AXA that you're aware of as lessons learned from the crisis. Thank you very much. <laughs> Maybe I should talk about my former employer, but I'm not going to do that. Um, well, there, there are a lot of dimensions in the moral hazard. It seems to me that the biggest and the most important one is the one that Charles alluded to. It's the too big to fail. <laughs> if a bank thinks that it is too big to fail and has good reasons to think that it is the case because it was bailed out by the government, mostly thinking of what happened in the U.S., but this is also relevant in some parts of Europe, then you have a problem you know in advance that you have a problem for the next crisis. And uh, the conclusion that uh, you said that was Mervyn King who said that, that if it is too big to fail, then it is too big, is, I think, a relatively sensible conclusion. So are we going to do something about that? When I say we, I'm talking about the policymakers. I'm not a policymaker. Well, I have some doubts about it, to be very honest with you. I'm a bit skeptical about that. But this is, I think, the biggest issue. Now, you have uh, more subtle more hazard issues. And uh, one is what I just said about uh, the management of the forex reserves of the new giants in the global economy. I mean, if in the US people think that they have a kind of lifetime guarantee that China will keep interest rate low in the US at the long end of the curve, then you have an insurance against uh, doing stupid things such as uh, the subprime market things and all that. So again, the moral hazard issue is at the individual company basis, and you are thinking of traders, there are no traders in insurance companies, so <laughs> this is not really our problem. Uh, but it is also, I think, something a bit more global. The last thing, I'm not a specialist at all of this kind of, uh, of issues, and I think that uh, Charles and David have much more things to say about moral hazard. I take a slightly different view. Um, my interpretation from what I have read is that the, the, the leaders of the big banks were not betting the bank because they thought the government would pick up the pieces. I think they didn't realize they were betting the bank. Um, moreover, uh, the phrase too big to fail is, I think, uh, one that needs to be treated with great circumspection. Many institutions 
are too big to close, they're not institutions which cannot have conditions under which the management, particularly the, the chief executives, get fired and the equity holders lose all their money. I think that, in a sense, the real, uh, if you like, scandal about what has happened has been that even in the failing banks, many of the, uh, uh, the leaders, maybe because they, they didn't realize what they were doing, nevertheless walked away with sums of money which the ordinary person would feel as if they entered into the most extraordinary sort of magical cave with sort of gold <laughs> hanging off the ceilings. Um, I, I tend to believe that moral hazard, which is, is, is actually overstated. Um, Any time that there is either insurance or the government provides a safety net, it is almost by definition involved in a degree of moral hazard. But yet there are ways of dealing with it. But the way of dealing with it is to ensure that those who take the decisions, not, if you like, I, there's no point in shutting a huge bank or a huge insurance company uh, when something goes wrong. But what you've got to ensure is that those who take the decisions are not protected. And the problem has been that we have protected the people and not necessarily the institutions. What we want to do is protect the institutions and not the people who take the decisions who manage them. I think uh, the, uh, we're all aware, obviously, that uh, within financial institutions, highly leveraged compensation packages uh, do encourage a certain degree of risk-taking. Uh, but they are taking risks with the shareholders' capital, uh, and also the shareholders should be aware of that. So there are issues to do with bank governance, shareholder activism here in this sector, something we're going to look at, in fact we are looking at, under this uh, project. Uh, in fact, the taxpayer underwrites the system, I suspect, and it does encourage degrees of risk-taking within the financial sector. I don't think it explains in any way why Citigroup has built up to be the rather cumbersome conglomerate that it is, and why essentially it still poses a very significant winding down problem. Over 30% of our bank is now owned by the US tax. <coughs> uh, or indeed, it, it probably doesn't explain why uh, Royal Bank of Scotland uh, bought ABN AMRO. These are bad economic decisions. These need to be separated out from the sort of crucial issues of why it is that bank balance sheets became as bloated as they are. I have to think that to some extent it might be explained by that the so-called uh, taxpayer put, if things go wrong, you put the bank to the taxpayer. But I have a horrible feeling that a lot of it's explained by the degree of uh, collective euphoria that, that we convinced ourselves that there's only one way but up for asset prices and leveraging our way to an apparent nirvana where we live on capital gains in our houses and various other assets and import cheap Chinese goods forever with a sort of way for eternal happiness. It wasn't going to last. But uh, I suspect that going forward we'll appreciate that it won't be repeated, at least hopefully not. Obviously we need to think carefully about exactly 
for example, in order to deal with some of the problems of capital flows, there is a proposal widely on the table uh, that the big export surplus countries like China and Germany ought to expand their domestic demand uh, rather than try and get out of the crisis by yet further current account surpluses. When faced with this, uh, the German response is, we make such good products that everybody should, wants to buy our goods, why should we do anything different? And now uh, that's a, sort of an example of coordination problems and is likely to continue. And we, and the, the fundamental difficulty is that we live in a world which has now become global in terms of a global market, a global financial system, but yet the instruments that can be used are all national, and that makes life very difficult. Uh, one more question. Yes, young lady at the front here, can you get into the middle of that row? Thank you very much. Good evening. My name is Susan Yin. I'm a PhD student from um, Kumeri. Um, my question is uh, relating to market risk um, and systemic risk in market cap um, activities. In the past two years, events have shown that systemic risk arises not from only from institutions, but also from capital market activities. For example, uh, in, your, um, in your talk, Professor Webb, you mentioned that banks have entered into, cap entered into capital markets um, using structured instruments. And my question is, what um, is the need for regulation of systemic risk in capital markets? If so, if there's need, how should we identify systemic risk in market activities um, and also how to address these risks? Great. Um, this is a very good question and a very important one. Um, I mean, obviously, I'm actually going to pass this over to Charles simply because he's written a, <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's written a whole report on this. Uh, the Geneva report had a, quite a lot to say about this. I mean, syst systemic risk is obviously risk that poses it's when something causes a risk to the whole system and normally we're talking about an institution or a set of institutions causing problems for the workings of the whole system now Charles in his talk started by saying it's when it, there's a problem uh, for the payment system so a single organization creates an externality by its potential failure for the workings of the whole system so lots of us who haven't contributed to generating that risk or problem will pay a price uh, in terms of our personal wealth and consumption, etc., uh, for that. So the mechanisms that we put in place, obviously, to deal with these issues are traditionally deposit insurance, uh, uh, the, the Bank of England being prepared to stand by and provide liquidity to systemically important institutions. And then, of course, more recently, we've talked about the need to actually provide capital to systemically important uh, institutions. Gordon Brown saved the world, you might remember. I don't think he wanted people to hear it when he said it, but uh, clearly that his claim to fame is that he put together a package with Darling to deal with what could have been systemically a, a much bigger problem than it turned out to be, big as it is. Uh, but Charles has given a lot of thought to some of these issues, which goes well beyond my textbook response, so perhaps he could comment further. Thank you.
stopping the problem in the first place is the best thing to do, which is limit the risks. But uh, I, I, markets are, among other things, are information mechanisms. And one of the problems of uh, our system recently has been that uh, information has been lacking in many respects. One of the concerns uh, was how far the downturn in asset prices had actually weakened the solvency of many of our financial intermediaries. And there uh, was a suspicion uh, developed quite widely uh, that the institutions were not as solvent as they should be. Uh, again, one of the problems with the, some of these uh, financial instruments, uh, the CDOs and other securitized products, uh, was that nobody actually quite understood which were the underlying products and how many of them had become, became impaired. Uh, there's another of these great phrases which is known as toxic assets. Uh, the real problem was that people didn't actually quite understand how toxic they were whether they were more toxic or less toxic. And undoubtedly, if we're going to get securitization to develop again, as I think we must, the banking system is going to be smaller. That securitization has got to be a great deal more transparent with much more information. And again, uh, the areas such as CDS markets, one of the problems, I think, was that nobody really appreciated how concentrated the risk was with AIG taking the one side of the uh, transactions in CDSs for a huge proportion of the CDS um, market. And again, that requires that the market mechanism needs to be made much more informative and much more transparent, which is one of the reasons for the proposals of the reforms that David mentioned uh, about the centralized counterparties, the CCPs, and maybe putting a lot more of these derivative products uh, onto exchange markets, or at any rate, undertaking measures will increase the public and regulators uh, and all participants' supply of common information on what is going on. Perhaps I'll just come back on that. Well, the remarkable thing about the history of this crisis is that in 2007, uh, Northern Rock, sort of time of crisis, underway and so on, we talked about liquidity and funding problems. Uh, what's quite remarkable is that when we got close to the Lehman period, uh, more so, but that's a year later, after a kind of phony war, or whatever it was, um, which not much had happened, I mean, Bear Stearns had been rescued, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac had been taken to the public ownership. This liquidity funding problem uh, became, by the Lehman event and the reaction to it, a major problem in capital in the whole financial system. And uh, it seems that, that opportunities must have been lost uh, between uh, the summer of 2007 and 2008. And you just wonder to what extent if the policymakers have actually thought more constructively about getting the relevant information into their own hands and the relevant counterparties, uh, some of these problems could have been alleviated or maybe it would have to be greater for any of what it possibly was. But I think Charles is responsible to your question. I think going forward, that information is going to be uh, something that the regulators 
So I'd like to thank, uh, first of all, AXA, Dominic, who's, uh, Dominic, who started our event. I'd like to thank uh, my co-panelists, Eric and Charles. And of course, more than anybody else, I'd like to thank you, the audience, for coming and spending an hour and a half with us.